Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Hey everyone, it's CW, and this week on the Top Docs Radio Show, we continued our monthly series with the Medical Association of Georgia. They introduced us to Dan Huff, and he is a founding partner in the Atlanta law firm Huff, Powell, and Bailey. For over 23 years, Dan has specialized in representing physicians and hospitals in medical malpractice lawsuits. And we know medical malpractice is a phrase that causes a measure of anxiety for those of us in healthcare, even when it doesn't have anything to do with us in our own practice. Dan shared some excellent information for us on how we can avoid lawsuits altogether if possible. And then we got into what do we need to do if we are served with a lawsuit? How do we handle records? How do we interact with patients and families when an untoward event has occurred? And then also gave some advice on how to handle ourselves if we're going through the process of the proceedings of a medical malpractice lawsuit. Hopefully with this information in hand, we'll be able to, one, avoid that situation from occurring in our practice, but also be better prepared if and when that unexpected event comes to pass. Here's Dan talking about why he enjoys his practice focused on medical malpractice. Check it out. I defend doctors and hospitals in medical malpractice cases. I like representing people who are trying very hard to help other people. And I believe that a lot of times cases are brought against them that are not meritorious. And so I like standing up for people who have good hearts and are trying to do their best, but are caught in a difficult legal situation. You know, I really do admire the work that physicians, nurses, and other medical providers do. And, you know, it's it's a it's a great calling for people who defend you to meet you and, and to represent you in these cases, you know, which are which are terrible. It's sad that we meet you under those circumstances, but we really do have a passion for doing it. Stick around. We got the full interview with Dan Huff, medical malpractice attorney, coming up next. Good afternoon, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show. Thanks for making us a part of your day today. And as is our standard and customary practice, every second Tuesday of the month, we're sitting in with folks from the Medical Association of Georgia. We've been pleased to partner with them and help them share some great information about the goings-on around uh, legislation and other topics that are relevant to our physician colleagues around the state. And today I'm joined in the studio by Dan Huff. He's an attorney with Huff, Powell, and Bailey. And we're going to be getting into medical malpractice, an issue that uh, certainly strikes fear and agita into many of us and and certainly into our physician colleagues around the state for sure. So thanks for taking some time to talk about it. Yeah, thanks for having me. What exactly falls into the arena? I mean, where what are the issues that are going to come under medical malpractice? So if somebody's maybe not from the healthcare side of things that may be checking things out, what exactly are we talking about? Well, medical malpractice law and medical malpractice lawsuits generally involve a patient who's been damaged or injured somehow and claims that it's because either a physician, um, someone who works with a physician, nurse, or other type of healthcare provider did something that was negligent in their professional duties and responsibilities. So it can be something that takes place in a doctor's office. It can be at the hospital, in the operating room. It can be outpatient care and treatment like home health. It's really pretty broad, but it generally involves a patient and a healthcare provider. And when we look at our 
our state in particular, how do we rank? I mean, if we look around the country, I know that there are certain areas of the country that tend to be more litigious than others, maybe more likely to go and, and get an attorney and try to sue my hospital, sue my doctor or everybody. Um, how do we rank and what's our climate like as it relates to malpractice? Well, it's, uh, it's not on either extreme. It's not what I would consider to be one of the states that there is a lot of litigation against physicians and hospitals, but it's also not in the category of states where there's very little litigation against doctors and hospitals. So I grew up in Nebraska, and there's very few medical malpractice cases that are ever pursued in Nebraska, and I think that's maybe kind of a, a, a Midwestern trend. So um, in Georgia, we do have a, a number of medical malpractice cases, it, it, but it's not as prevalent as you would see in, say, um, Cook County, Illinois, or certain other counties in Illinois, or in Philadelphia, that those parts of the Northeast. Now, from, from the perspective of the issue of tort reform, for example, it's something that's certainly been bantered about in the last few years. We need tort reform, that kind of thing. And from what I understand, I, I don't know a lot about it, but it, from, I remember hearing that Texas, I think, may have passed some sort of laws that that put some caps on how much could be gotten, if you will, in mm -hmm. terms of awards. If, if someone was successful in some sort of a case against a healthcare provider, um, I, I believe I'm on the right track. Yes. Um, is there any kind of measures like that here in the state of Georgia, or is it kind of whatever happens, happens? So um, in 2005, the uh, General Assembly passed some medical malpractice tort reform that included a $350,000 cap on pain and suffering damages alone. Um, that's the kind of cap that a lot of other states have put in place just dealing with pain and suffering. Some other states have caps on the entire amount that you could recover in a medical malpractice case. But um, Georgia, because of its state constitution, which has the right to a jury trial, which is goes back into the 1800s. The Constitution as one of the um, constitutional rights we all have as, as uh, Georgia citizens struck down the cap as being a violation of the state constitution. So although we had it for a couple years, uh, it, it went away um, not long after it. And that did have an impact on the number of cases that were filed. There was a period of time after that uh, damages cap went into place where I think cases really did go down. And since that time, since it was struck down as being unconstitutional, um, the cases have picked up some mm -hmm. again. So in your in your opinion, and we don't really wax too, I don't know, we don't wax, in, wax into the controversial side of things too much um, or too deeply into politics, but from the perspective of a, a, a legal pro professional like yourself, I mean, where do you stand on that? Do you believe that having having some measure of limit, if you will, on that side of things is something that is meritorious, it has value, or, or is that it really should be left to kind of free form and case-by-case -case basis, we'll sort out where it goes? Yeah, so that's a, I mean, that's a really tough question for um, any lawyer, but particularly one who defends hospitals and doctors. I do think that there should be some limits. I don't think that we can constitutionally do that in Georgia. At the same time, I'm a big believer in the jury system and the right of all citizens to have their disagreements uh, aired in front of juries, and, and that juries really do get it right most of the time. Um, damages have always been one area that's left to juries. They have the broadest discretion, and it's really their own conscience that sets 
what damage awards should be in cases like this. But it doesn't, you don't have to look very far to see some really amazingly high awards in medical malpractice cases. And those awards, I think, hurt the system as a whole. And some type of cap that would address those issues, um, I think, would be desirable. At the same time, we have a system in Georgia where trial court judges who preside over jury trials, if they believe the award is too high or doesn't match the damages, then they have very broad discretion to reduce those awards. And I think if judges, and and there have been some great examples this year of judges who have done that with large awards, um, did that more often, there really isn't a need for caps if there was some more control over that. I see. And and you mentioned the fact that when the the law went into effect that actually capped the the pain and suffering side of things that that those damages that the number of suits that were filed went down i'm i'm curious if there was information around or practice if you will where one of the things i've heard over time is that physicians often in order to prevent themselves from being sued later because they didn't get study x or they didn't get study y when they have effectively interviewed the patient and and they know clinically with a high degree of confidence based on everything that they have at their disposal from the interview to other clinical data that they've obtained that I really don't need this x-ray. I really don't need this MRI or whatever the study may be that we're talking about that they end up running because if something does go awry and that small chance that I'm incorrect here or we miss something, then that will be the, the reason why I'm open, if you will, to, to malpractice. Do you, was there any kind of information during that period of time? Well, did our, did our practice change at all? Or did we, did, did that affect the, the, the physician side of things as well? Yeah. So I mean, one of the big reasons why the cap had so much support and has support in other states is because exactly what you're talking about, CW, which we call defensive medicine. Right. And so defensive medicine is you're thinking as a physician, you think about the possibilities of lawsuits and making sure you're covering bases with unnecessary testing right. just to protect yourself. So yes. it's not necessarily in the plane in the in the patient's interest, but you feel like it's necessary to protect yourself, so you do that. And um, when the caps were being debated in the General Assembly, not in Georgia, but also in other states, there are organizations that actually put a dollar figure on defensive medicine, how much it costs the system and how much it raises everybody's health insurance. And um, what I've found is that defensive medicine is is kind of ingrained in physicians. We've had the tort system for a long time now. Everybody who's gone through training and been practiced either has been in a lawsuit or knows somebody real close to them has been through a lawsuit. So I'm afraid defensive medicine's here to stay. I don't think the cap's really going to address that. I know there was a study done, I think it was published a couple years ago, that looked at Texas. And Texas had put in a, uh, a damages cap and some protections for ER physicians. And they looked at, did the number of certain kinds of tests go down once those things were implemented? Right. And, and specifically, a common situation is a patient who comes in the emergency room with low back pain. Um, how many of those patients received x-rays or MRIs right. for their low back pain. That's one of those defensive medicine tests that gets done a lot. Um, and they actually studied that after the tort reform went into effect in Texas, it did not decrease the number of MRIs that were being done for patients with low back pain. So the bottom line is that there's there's a lot of 
evidence on both sides. I think, unfortunately, defensive medicine's probably here to stay. Yeah, I, mean, I would imagine that's probably true. I mean, or at a minimum that it would take a number of years for the the practice itself to really begin to sway. I mean, I think that if physicians began to see that fewer cases are being brought and the ones that are brought tend to be more real, if you will, more make more sense when they are brought, um, that that might over time possibly start to affect the way people trust what they're seeing as far as my clinical interview here with this patient and the, uh, the uh, subjective and objective data that I've obtained to this point is enough to make a good diagnosis. I would imagine it would probably take several years, if if not longer. Right. Well, and it's an interesting thing because patients, when we when we pick juries for medical malpractice cases, we often talk to the the jurors who are patients themselves, and they they really do feel like they get over tested, and they and they feel like that the doctors order more tests than they need to um, to cover themselves, or for so so society kind of recognizes this, and and really at the same time, a lot of the doctors who I talk to. They also order a lot of tests just to really be safe because they're cautious people. Not They're really not thinking about the lawsuit, but they're worried enough about the particular patient just to make sure that they've covered that patient for their own safety. Now, you mentioned how our state is relatively average with regards to the number uh, and extent of lawsuits that are brought against the healthcare providers in hospitals and so forth. Um, you mentioned the fact that I think it was Nebraska that you came from where it's very low. What do you think the reason is for whether somebody, you know, whether some uh, given population is litigious, like say they're not very much so in, in Nebraska versus other areas where they are? Or more specifically, I guess, is there something in that interaction where a physician can have an effect on whether or not they're open or not to a lawsuit or more more likely to be so. I think your I think your instincts are right on about Nebraska. It's it's a smaller medical community. So where I grew up, I knew most of the people who were doctors, even if I didn't see them, but everybody just kinda knew the doctors and 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 knew them closely so that you it was really difficult, I think, to make a decision to sue somebody in your community who happened to be a physician. So I think I think that was a big part of it. But I also think the doctors were much more one on one um, with their patients. And anywhere, if a doctor has really good communication with their patients, I think they're going a long way to heading off a lawsuit. Um, yeah, I, I worked clinically in nursing for a number of years before moving away from it some time ago. And, and that was the thing that seemed to resonate over and over was the the doctors that you saw that would end up in that situation seemed to be the ones that both from the professional side interacting with team members uh, as well as their their level of attention or lack thereof and their their demeanor with their patients and families. Did they make themselves accessible and available to have questions answered, particularly when somebody or a patient or a family member is really anxious and have a lot of questions and concerns? It seemed that the more engaged that the physician came to be or the provider in general, it's not just physicians. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, all of the providers that are touching that patient um, along the way can can have an impact on that. I think it's very much around emotion uh, and, and what was my sense of uh, how much did they care about me uh, right. as to whether or not I feel punitive if something doesn't go right. No, I think, I think if you're talking about the best ways for doctors to avoid 
um, you know, litigation with their patients. You know, number one, just being very open and communicating with them as much as possible is key. Not only just the number of times that you communicate with your patients, but really sharing with them what your thought process is and making sure that they understand. So, um, you know, as a patient, sometimes I, when I'm in there with my doctor and they're explaining things, you know, some of it just kind of goes over <laughs> my head even. And, yeah. and, and, you know, I, I think doctors just need to make sure their patients really do understand. And this is especially true when something bad has happened because, you know, bad outcomes happen. They're not caused by negligence and malpractice except in a very, very small percentage of cases. But patients don't know that. They're pretty devastated by what happened. Their expectations have not been met. Um, that's a really important time for a physician to put everything else aside and have a very, very meaningful conversation with their patient about what happened, why it happened, here's what we can do to try and fix it, or here's what we can do to make it better. And that is really critical because I can tell you from taking depositions of patient, former patients who become plaintiffs in medical malpractice cases, when we ask them in the depositions, well, why did you decide to sue your doctor? It seemed like you'd been seeing them for a long time and had this, you know, very successful relationship. It's, well, you know, after this happened, I just never got a straight answer to what took place. And I, I never got a straight answer to why my phone calls weren't returned. And I think that drives a lot of people who are patients to lawyers' offices to have lawyers find out exactly what happened when there's a bad outcome. And I think that drives it. So um, the other thing that I would advise a physician to just avoid litigation is really be somebody who's a very diligent documenter. So medical records are like written communication to a lawyer who might be reviewing a case. You know, put your thought process in there. So somebody who doesn't know you who may is trying to decide whether they're going to sue you or not will know what your thought process was because it's contained in the medical records. And good documentation heads off that next category of cases where the patient has actually gone to the lawyer's office. The lawyer's now trying to decide whether to take the case. The documentation looks good. You've gone a long way to heading off a lawsuit. Now, as it relates to the conversation, let's say an untoward event occurs, and there's a conversation. How did this happen? What did this happen? I sometimes I listen to some talk talk radio that's not my own, and um, and they'll have on like Bruce Hagen, the the attorney, the legal expert that talks about the people's the, lawyer. Yeah, that's right, the people's lawyer. If you drink too much, you get popped, and and now you're you're getting pulled over. He talks about don't do any of the tests, don't you know that kind of stuff in terms of not necessarily, if you will, I guess cooperating or being overly voluntary with with data. Uh, that could be used against you. How does that kind of thought process come into play here? Because what I'm hearing you say is to at least some measure, it makes better sense to actually, I don't know, full disclosure, but I mean, the, the more open you can be in explaining, maybe it's a statistical outcome, for example. So, you know, we know that three out of 100 times we do this procedure, this outcome happens. Um, how, how, how should they approach that from a tactical perspective so that they can address the question, but yet at the same time not be giving somebody too much rope, if you will? Sure. The, I mean, the key to that is really to be very factual. So be very descriptive about what happened. So if it was a, if it was a surgical procedure and the patient didn't do well afterwards, 
describe the steps taken during the surgical procedure and, and, and point out to the patient or the patient's family, well, this at each step, when did it go in a routine fashion? And then at what point did you encounter something that was unexpected or that needed to be addressed that might have led to the bad outcome? So be, be very descriptive. Um, the, the thing I would tell any physician or anyone not to do is to give opinions about other people who are on the care team or give an opinion about the patient or the patient's family. Um, that's not productive. It's counterproductive. So blaming somebody else, well, you know, yeah, I mean, I was doing the best I could. If only the anesthesiologist would have told me that the blood pressure was low or, right. well, if you'd only come in a week earlier, like I told you to, um, we could have fixed this. Those are the kinds of things that are not, they're counterproductive. Their opinions are usually made without the benefit of all the facts. And so that discussion should not include any opinions about other people, not only other providers, but also the patient or the patient's family. And to go back to maybe, a, you know, maybe apples and oranges, but to, to, to look at the situation where you're in a fender bender. And I've heard over and over, don't ever say I'm sorry, particularly if it was your fault. Um, you know, do things like say, are you okay? And that kind of stuff. But, but don't say I'm sorry, because then in fact, you're by doing that somehow now, all of a sudden, that means it's your fault. What about in this kind of case? Can you express? Is it is it a damning thing for you to say? Gosh, I'm I'm sorry. This is the outcome, but here's what happened. Yeah. So um, there have been a lot of studies of medical providers and apologies. So mm -hmm. I, actually, medical literature and papers written about this. And <laughs> I'm glad I asked. <laughs> this, now this is a this is a very um, very current topic. So um, a lot of people really believe that when physicians apologize to their patients for bad outcomes, that it, it really helps them heal, number one. Um, it decreases the likelihood that they will sue you, number two. Um, number three, it facilitates more open communication. Okay. Um, now, there's a difference between saying, I'm sorry about this outcome. I know that this was supposed to be a routine surgery and we had a bleeding complication sure. and now there's a problem. And I'm sorry, my hand slipped and I cut <laughs> open your <laughs> iliac vein. Right. Um, so, you know, what I'm talking about is apologizing for the outcome. But at the same time, um, Georgia provides protection for that statement. So in Georgia, we have the apology statute, which would prevent the jury in the medical malpractice trial from ever hearing that that conversation took place. So, um, and the purpose for that is really to encourage physicians to uh, have these conversations and apologize and offer to help and say, look, this is my fault. Um, I will do the repair surgery for free or some statement like that. It, it would be protected so that if that was a medical malpractice case down the road, the patient plaintiff couldn't say, well, he told me it was his fault. So that's inadmissible. It's inadmissible as a, as a way to encourage doctors to have those conversations. So you as the litigating attorney that was on the, the, the case of the protagonist in this case, you would be making sure that you'd say something in court that says, well, you said he was sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Or would you get admonished by the, by the judge if you went down that road? Right. It's one of those things you can't unhear it that's once right. you hear it. There would be a mistrial. So, so if somebody oh, okay. did that, then the case would be mistrial. The jury would leave. You get a new jury. Okay. But yeah, but it's it's something that we deal with before trial with a motion, um, where the judge would say, "Okay, no one's going to talk about 
the apology. That's out. So it doesn't get mentioned in opening statement, closing argument, or or anybody gets questioned about and, it. And so does that cover physicians only? Or if I'm a, I'm a nursing professional, for example... You're covered. I'm okay to yep. say, geez, I'm really... Sorry that this happened. Yeah, the CEO of the hospital's covered. I mean, it's really okay. it's real it's written very broadly to encourage um, those kinds of conversations. So the things I'm hearing so far are engage your patients, be as open as possible, talk in as much detail as you can about what happened, where it was normal, and this is where it went awry. Say I'm sorry that this happened. I'm sorry the you know the event didn't come out like we had hoped or anticipated, whatever the case may be. So it's okay to say those things. It's a good thing to say those things from what I'm hearing you say. I agree. And so, all that being said, what what do I do when I'm I'm working in my office and and a snarky guy walks in and smacks an envelope in my in my hand and says, "Are you CW Hall? Yeah, you've been served. What what do I do now?" Well, um, you know, after you, uh, you know, catch your breath again and go to the restroom or whatever else needs to be done. Uh, I mean, joking aside, I have a lot of clients who tell me that have gone through the entire medical malpractice case through the trial, including a week long trial in front of a judge and jury who tell me, you know, the worst part of that whole process was when the sheriff came and knocked on the door at nine o'clock and gave me the papers, you know, and I, I thought, you know, the kid's asked me if I was going to jail and, you know, all that. And and I really do. There's a number of clients who feel like that's the worst part of the entire process, including the trial. But um, what you, the first thing you should do is you should notify your insurance carrier if you have one. Um, most doctors do. You should notify your insurance carrier right away. Um, for most doctors, that really means contacting your broker, who's the person who got your medical malpractice insurance because you haven't had any issue with lawsuits before. So it, you, you don't have a direct dial or speed dial to the claims department, um, thankfully. Yeah. And uh, so you do that first. Um, I always tell you, um, you know, you shouldn't talk to anyone about it. Um, I think that's good advice. You know, obviously, you're going to talk to your spouse or, um, you know, somebody close to you about it. You should always um, secure the chart or the medical record. So um, it's important that if you're named in a medical malpractice case that the, the medical record for that patient, if it's your office chart, you need to get that and secure it. How so? Well, you need to lock it up in a, in a lock file cabinet, a safe, um, put it somewhere safe because once the lawsuit is filed or once you have noticed that a lawsuit is going to be filed and maybe you haven't been served yet, but that's really critical evidence, and you, you can't let anything happen to it. You don't want anybody to go back and write something in it. You don't want anybody to get rid of anything in it because that really causes more problems. So you want to secure that record and make sure it's safe. Um, you need to then get your lawyer. It's oftentimes assigned by your insurance carrier, but sometimes not. And really trust them to handle the case for you. So there's a lot of fantastic defense lawyers in Georgia um, who've done many of these cases. And I would give anyone who's listening to this telecast advice, don't play lawyer. Let your lawyer play lawyer for you. Um, because we know the ins and outs of how to handle these cases and, and, and what's best to do. And Listening to us is really your best move uh, in, if you happen to get in one of these cases. Um, the other thing to understand, it's a long process. So when we say something is going to happen quickly in the law, 
that's six months at least. That's quick. It's like geologic time. <laughs> right. It really is. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. It's not dog years. It's the. It's the opposite of dog years. But we do. Um, we we it, things take a long time. And I think the average medical malpractice case, if you just have a doctor as a defendant, is anywhere from one to three years. Wow. It's and to go to trial. And if you add another defendant, so let's say it's a doctor in a hospital or a doctor and a nurse. Every additional defendant adds probably a year. So that's unbelievable. I had no idea it took that long. Yeah, and it's just it's just takes a long time to it's they're complicated cases. There's a lot of uh, people who end up the nursing staff gets deposed, the doctors get deposed, the plaintiffs get deposed. So it just takes a long time to get them to court. And so it's a it's difficult for the doctors who are named in these cases because we do everything we can to try and move these cases along because the longer they're hanging around over the doctor's head, even if they're very defensible, it's just never goes out of their mind. Yeah. As you can imagine. Only, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, we try and move them as fast as we can, but it, it's difficult. I, I, I was thinking about how myself, I had worked in cardiovascular intensive care for eight years and, and taking care of very sick cardiovascular and a bunch of different kinds of critical care cases. And I'm like, wow, I'm so pleased that I was never part of any kind of suits. Cause I mean, you know, those patients, they're sick and, and bad things happen. And, um, so I'm, I'm very glad that I never had to experience what you're describing. Yeah. You dealt with a lot of complications and bad outcomes just by nature of the, mm-hmm. uh, of the work. But, um, and some of those you can't really tell, which ones will go into litigation and which ones won't. It really kind of depends on the family and what their thoughts are about what happened and how disappointed they are and upset. And so what ends up determining where it goes from that point? You're, you've been served uh, and now it's in motion. So now what? What takes it to trial versus settlements, that kind of thing? So it's really a evaluation of all the information. So, you know, we look at various factors to decide whether a case is one that we want to take to trial or one that we would like to try and settle. One is the, is obviously just the facts and circumstances. But, you know, most cases can fall into a category, well, they all have bad outcomes. Is it a bad outcome because of negligence and malpractice or is it a bad outcome because of things that were outside the physician's control? So, You kind of have to look at that first. Then you need to evaluate, well, is this physician defendant somebody who a jury is going to like? Are they going to come across in a way that is going to be favorable for the jury? Are they going to, are the jurors at the end of the trial going to say, you know, I would go see that doctor myself, or if I had a problem with one of my family members, I would be comfortable with them taking care of them. You know, if a juror, if jurors reach that conclusion, you're probably going to win the case no matter what the medical facts are. So that's a big deal. Interesting. And how, I mean, is it difficult, I guess, for some people to be likable? I would think so. It's Yeah. It's, I mean, everybody tries to be likable, but it's really kind of just underlying personality. Yeah. Uh, so probably yeah. over that period of time, I'm sure it's hard to keep it in check. Yeah. You've got, you've got some physicians are, are very arrogant. Um, some physicians have to be in control of everything, and when they're not in control, it manifests in, in a lot of different ways. Um, some physicians are simply too passive, and they just give in too much, and they don't stick up for themselves. So those are all you know issues that get into the evaluation. The, the medical record documentation is another big deal. If the, if the medical record is telling a 
dramatically different story than the doctor is about what happened or the nurses are about what happened. That's a big deal, too, because it doesn't really match up, and it, it undermines the credibility of the people who are doing the documentation. Um, certainly, there's experts in these cases. The, the plaintiff gets experts who testify about the standard of care, and the defense gets experts. There's always an evaluation of how the experts will do, and um, the damage is involved. And, and if the plaintiffs are likable people, I have to tell you that some of the most incredible people I've ever met um, in, in the practice of law have been plaintiffs in medical malpractice cases because sometimes they're, and this is really true, a lot of plaintiff's attorneys just don't take medical malpractice cases because of the cost involved unless they have really terrific clients. So, hmm. um, you know, if, you, if you've met parents of somebody who are taking care of a child with cerebral palsy or a child who's got significant brain damage, you know, they're, they're incredible people who are doing their best in a difficult situation. You know, it's, it's very hard to go after people, you know, like right, that. Right. as a lawyer. It's and, the and same you, going the other direction. I right. Guess. It's very true. It's very true. So, um, you just, we just, um, so that's another, I mean, that's another factor. The other big, big thing is kind of talking about, we were talking about this on a national level, but in a, in a state level, the venue, there are some counties that fine for the plaintiff more than other counties. And so the venue is a big deal where, where the cases are being tried and, uh, and that, that's a factor in the outcome that goes into it as well. It's interesting. I mean, do you know, I mean, what, what is the variable in, in those types of regions that you find, you, do you believe that kind of causes that to go one way or the other? Yeah. So, um, I think, it's generally believed that in metro, the metropolitan Atlanta counties and other metropolitan parts of Georgia, um, there's more people from all over the country. So more people have located there. So there's not people who've lived there one or two generations in the same county. So people come from all over. So it's more of a mixed bag of folks. Um, there's more experience with medical care. So um, there's more people who've been involved in different types of medical care. And it's it's busier in Atlanta in the emergency rooms and doctor's offices. I think the wait times are longer. There's more dissatisfaction <laughs> with those kinds of things here. Um, so, I mean, I think those are all, uh, you know, factors that go into it. Uh, you know, as opposed to um, some of the rural counties in Georgia where there's six doctors maybe in, in a small county hospital and the people who end up on the jury in large part have been people that have lived in that county for a really long time. Um, there's not a lot of verdicts for plaintiffs in those kinds of in those counties. I've been sitting down with attorney Dan Huff. He specializes in defending healthcare providers, physicians, and hospitals and healthcare organizations when lawsuits are brought against them for the issue of malpractice. Getting some great tips on how to ideally avoid them altogether, um, and then uh, some good information for folks in the. Instance that you do manage to, you know, find yourself in the case where you're getting served with a lawsuit, and I'm I'm kind of curious about what determines, <clears throat> excuse me, the the extent of a settlement or you know the size of the awards if it goes that way. Sure. Um, so we we look at past data that's available. So there is some data that's available about what cases have gone to trial, what the verdicts have been, and more limited data on what settlements have taken place. Um, settlements in medical malpractice cases are 
almost always confidential. So it's not it's not really public information, but the lawyers that do it on a regular basis kind of know what cases have settled for in the past. And then you can look public info, verdicts are public information, and you can look at verdicts. So that's a big deal. What often goes into the ultimate analysis is, you know, what exactly are the damages? So um, if somebody's had a, a bad outcome from surgery and then it, they had to undergo some additional surgeries, that's pain and suffering for the additional surgeries recovery. There's medical expenses that go along with that. So, you know, however much that is, they might have missed work. And then they might have any ongoing damages, more medical treatments that they're going to need or they're going to have to be on a medication that they were not on before and maybe out of work for a different, you know, for a longer period of time or have to take a different job that pays less. Um, those are all things that you can kind of put pen to pencil and come up with the total amount and then say, well, pain and suffering, is it something the jury's going to decide? And then factor it that way. Um, wrongful death cases where the bad outcome has been the patient has died, um, those, are, those are typically um, evaluated based on the age of the patient, number one, and, and how much earning capacity or, or potential earning capacity that the patient had. So um, those are it's it's the economic and the non-economic value of the life is the measure of damages. So I, I see. And when you look at your cases across your your experience, do you find some particular areas where these are the things that tend to really undo a case? Meaning it goes poorly for the provider. You know what I'm saying? Yes. I, I would assume I, you mentioned documentation. I'm sure that's one of the top places if we didn't document very well or clearly, whatever the case may be. But what are the places that end up making a case weak for your side? Yeah. So um, the weakest case is a multiple defendant case where you have several defendants and there's a lot of finger pointing among the defendants. So where you have a case where the defendants are saying, are blaming each other for what happened. So that's a case that really is unwinnable. <laughs> that's a lot of moving parts. Yeah. <laughs> it is. So, I mean, not a, you, instead of a case where you have the hospital and the physician together saying, look, we were doing our best for this patient. We feel terrible, too. Um, you know, it was a bad outcome. You have the hospital saying, well, you know, we, we called the physician several times. The physician wouldn't come in. And the the doctor saying i didn't get any calls or yeah i got one call but it was everything's fine no one was sounding the alarm and if they had told me this i would have come in and right. taken care of it um that's a situation that really doesn't lend itself to a successful trial <laughs> what about handwriting yeah so handwriting handwriting is a big deal um and we have we've dealt with that at trial this way if a physician has really bad handwriting we are going to show the jury their medical records, but we're going to have them already translated by the doctor and typed out. And so the jury can see, well, here's what the handwriting means. Um, I have to tell you that now everything's moved to electronic medical records. And so there's, there's not any real miscommunications with handwriting like there used to be because orders and um, progress notes are tend to be in the electronic medical record now. So the danger of an order being illegible and then a patient getting the wrong medication has, has gone down considerably. But yeah, handwriting's a, an issue. And with uh, the electronic medical record, uh, obviously in an effort to facilitate efficiency, one of the things is 
pre-populated fields based on if, if you come in and you're complaining of a sore throat, then I can actually start to begin to pre-populate certain things. Do you find that that ends up coming into play in any any fashion on this end of things at all with the, the kind of the pre-populated text? Yeah, so um, the pre-populated medical records, they don't look good. Um, I think it bothers us as lawyers more than it really bothers jurors. <clears throat> the research that we've done about that and, and cases that we've tried where there have been mistakes in the in the drop-down fields and mistakes in the right. in the records, um, jurors can get over that. They're really actually pretty, um, pretty understanding of that. Um, it's very different than a doctor sitting down and writing in their progress note, you know, so, consult some consult urology, for example, and then not getting a urology consult. Um, there was a lot of conscious thought and actual writing of that down. You know, drop-down fields are something we all deal with whenever we're, you know, getting a plane ticket or doing things. You know, we might click on Florida instead of Georgia or right. Hawaii instead of Georgia. Exactly. It just happens to all of us. And so jurors are pretty forgiving of that, actually. Um, and how, how ended—obviously, time is a big deal, particularly when I'm a physician, I'm rounding, and I've got— I've got 10 or 12 or however many patients I need to see in the hospital and then get on to my office and all the the rest of my day. But how how detailed, if you will, should you get when it comes to those written progress notes that you're describing? Because, I mean, I, I remember um, seeing many, many times where it was extremely brief. <laughs> yes, yes, that's very true. Um, well, there's a lot of disagreement about this. Um, I think if in CW, I'm sure you've talked to some of Doctors who've told you that, you know, documentation, especially now and what's required of doctors, is very, very difficult and is making the practice of medicine yeah. almost impossible it's for tough. them. Yeah. And so um, the tendency is to uh, include less um, and keep it as brief as possible. That's just kind of the trend because of the, just how time-consuming this, this issue has become. Um it's hard to go against that. I mean, obviously, in an ideal world, we would have these terrific notes that would go on and on and on about every patient and uh, would be spectacular. But um, that's just not the reality. I, what I would say is you have to be really aware of the potential for problems with specific patients and that there are certain high-risk areas. You know, a nurse is communicating with you about a patient's change in condition. Um, you know, you need a consult right away because of something going on with a patient. A patient's taking a turn for their worse for whatever reason. You know, that's when your brain needs to immediately click in and say, okay, I need to be at the, you know, in top form from a documentation standpoint for this patient in this specific situation. I think if you do that, you're really going to protect yourself from 99% of the issues. I mean, I, I'm not foolish enough to say, well, you know, you need to document on and on and on for every patient because that's just not realistic. But recognizing that, you know, this patient in your office, they haven't been doing well. Um, they're back. They were here two days ago. They're back again. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with this patient. You know, that needs a little bit more documentation than just the kind of rote progress note. Um, so I think it's recognition of the situation and being more complete then. For... You know, I'm always impressed by how fast our time goes by. But before we let you get back to your practice, I mean, do you have some final thoughts that, that we can leave our listeners with that will, A, you know, kind of reiterate how they can prevent getting sued to begin with, but just general advice that we might want to leave folks with before we get you back to your to your work? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple things. Um, 
and I think you'll appreciate the CW as a former nurse, but, you know, listen to the nurses. Um, I talk to nursing groups all the time, and I tell them that, you know, if you're going to call a physician, if you're going to take the time to call a physician, and the physician, you know, for whatever reason, elects not to come in and see a patient, um, you know, don't just document, the, you know, physician aware, physician aware, physician aware, and you feel like the doctor needs or the patient needs to be seen by a doctor. Get a doctor there. You know, if this doctor won't be there, get another doctor. But, you know, remember that you have to focus on the patient. You you are not going to be saved in a medical malpractice case because you made the call and wrote that you made the call if the patient needs to see a doctor. Um, the converse is true for physicians. You know, if you get a call from a nurse about one of your patients and you elect not to do something for that patient that, you know, could be second-guessed later on, you need to do a very, very good job of documenting why you decided not to do that. So, you know, if you're if you're a um, OBGYN and a nurse calls you about a fetal heart rate tracing that they're worried about, and you come in and you elect not to do a C-section, the explanation for why you're not doing the C-section needs to be in there. Interesting. Um, okay. That will that will really protect you. And the only other thing I'd like to say is, um, you know, uh, there's always a lot of uh, criticism of the jury system. Um, in Georgia in medical malpractice cases. And I will tell you that the winning percentage in medical malpractice cases is still, you know, in the high 80s, 90%, 80, 85 to 90%, and it has been for a number of years. So despite what the medical profession says about trying cases in front of jurors, um, they still win the vast majority of those cases. So um, you have to uh, you have to believe in the jury system and, and understand that it is um, it's what we have. It's how these cases are going to get resolved. You can you can do really well in the jury system as a physician if you just listen to your lawyer and be who you are, not try and be somebody else. So it sounds like one of the big pieces of advice that that our provider listeners need to think about is if we're going to do something that someone should say, we, we should have done this or, you know, why didn't you come in? That would be the one I think that, that the piece that you talked about just, just a moment ago would be a, a one of value is if, if I don't believe this situation, I got called, they, they, it's the middle of the night and they called me and I don't feel like it's urgent enough that I need to go in that, that it's actually worthwhile to do you jot a note down or <laughs> what, what format should you use to document your, you know, getting off of what someone might say you should have done this? This is why I did not do that. Right. So, you know, if you get the call at home, I do think you ought to write something down about it and keep it. And then that can be used to then write your progress note the next day when you go and see the patient. Um, I just think that in those kinds of situations in patients who aren't doing well, you know, and we all as physicians, or I hear a lot of stories about physicians who get called by nurses and there's a lot of false alarms mm -hmm. and they come in and it's no big deal. But, right. you know, ask all the important questions, write down all the information, make a judgment about coming in or not coming in. Um, the physicians in Atlanta and, and really Georgia, for that matter, they're well-trained and they have excellent judgment. And, you know, you're making the right decision most of the time. It's just can you prove that you made the right decision? Right. So I would jot it down. You're going to see the patient the next morning if you choose not to come in at that time, and you can evaluate then. And also, you know, encourage the nurse, look, if, if these things happen, call me back. Um, give the nurse some instruction. So kind of close the loop on, okay, well, I'm not going to come in. Here's what I'd like for you to do. But if this 
is still present, or if the patient hasn't done this by such and such a time, you know, please call me back. And then that, that provides the nurse with some, some comfort that the doctor's been contacted, the doctor knows what's going on, and when they're supposed to call back if something um, isn't improved. If I'm going to keep that kind of a note, What's an appropriate format? I mean, if all I've got is a napkin, I mean, is that going to be acceptable? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. If, if, if I'm like searching for a pen, all I've got is this. It's, you know, it's, it, anything's acceptable because really what you're doing is simply writing a temporary note that you will then convert within, you know, however many hours, less than 12 hours to the progress note in the chart whereby you can include in there, um, receive call last night at 3 o'clock in the morning, um, nurse reported this and this and this, and then continue. Or in your office chart where you're going to say, you know, receive call last night about patient okay. and did it that way. So it, it can be anything because you're not going to have to, you, you know, no, you're not carrying <laughs> you it for to put two the years or anything. In the, you're right. In yeah. the chart. You don't need to put it into a uh, plastic <laughs> sleeve and put it in some special <laughs> notebook or anything like that. I would encourage you to get rid of it once it's, once it's made its way into the permanent record. Well, for, for the folks who've been listening today, if you come up with a question uh, for our, our expert guest here after the fact, you're welcome to tweet them to us, send them to us through the Facebook page. We'll be happy to try to get answers back to you uh, even after the show has aired. Um, we'll be really pleased to get some good information to you and link you up with uh, expert opinions here because uh, that's what we're all about is trying to make sure that we're putting some useful tips in your hands that will help protect you and uh, make your practice uh, flow that much more smoothly. And so Dan Huff from Huff, Powell, and Bailey sharing some information on the malpractice side of things. It's been some great information. Well, thanks for having me. I had some great questions, too. Any final thoughts before we let you get back to the office? No, I just want to... Um the only thing I would say is, uh, you know, I really do admire the work that physicians, nurses, and other medical providers do. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great calling for people who defend you to, um, to meet you and, and to represent you in these cases, you know, which are, which are terrible. It's sad that we meet you under those circumstances, but we really do have a passion for doing it. If you want more information about Huff, Powell, and Bailey, you can go to their website. That's at HuffPowellBailey.com, and that's B-A-I-L-E-Y, HuffPowellBailey.com. Um, we will uh, have a link to them from the podcast show page once we get that up. So if you uh, are listening to the podcast, have questions for them, or want to get to know more about their practice, you'll be able to go straight from the show's page. And while you're checking out the podcast, on the upper left-hand corner of the show page will be an Apple logo. If you follow that, it'll take you to the iTunes Top Docs Radio Show podcast, and you can subscribe to it so that every week you'll get to hear from all of these top-notched healthcare experts that we're introducing you to on a week-in and week-out basis. Uh, to the folks over at Health or Med Medical Association of Georgia, Tom Cornegay and Donald Palmasano Jr., and all those folks, we really appreciate you and uh, the interesting folks that you've made available to us through the show here on a monthly basis. And uh, I appreciate you making some time, Dan, to, to come on the show today. Uh, and to the folks who've made time to uh, check out what we had to say today, we really appreciate you making time for us, and we hope you turn around and share it with your connections because you never know the information that you share might just help somebody that you care about. So we hope you do that. And uh, we look forward to seeing you all next month. The Medical Association of Georgia folks will be back on the second Tuesday. And to everybody else, we'll see you all same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. 